if you have your Bibles. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 3. As you know, we've been working through the book of Ephesians. Now, I think it's been 26 weeks-ish that we've been in the book of Ephesians. Uh, We probably have another 25 weeks or so left in the book of Ephesians. And what we've done here in chapter 3 is kind of broke for just a moment from kind of the main working through Ephesians and kind of took a few weeks here to take a look at what does these next particular verses have to say about our vision as a church. And our vision is to see the gospel renovate everything, ourselves, our lives, our families, our our city, by God's people living out their gospel identity in their everyday rhythms. So people living out their gospel identity in their everyday rhythms. That's how God is going to renovate all of life, all of ourselves, our families, our communities. And so we're taking a look at these verses to say, what do these have to say about that vision, about that plan? And then here in a couple of weeks, we will finish up that. Next week, I'm going to preach on uh, leadership, church leadership, uh, actually the next two or three weeks. Um, as we kind of look at Paul's last phrase here in this portion where he talks about leaders and suffering, uh, which is for the glory of those whom he is leading. Uh, and then actually we're going to spend a week talking about deacons, uh, of all things. We as a church do not have any official deacons, and uh, it's, it's kind of time for us to move into that next stage of, of our journey as a church and, uh, and to recognize some deacons. And so I want to spend some time teaching on that. Uh, and then we're going to do a Christmas series from book of Hebrews, chapter 1. We'll be there for a few weeks in, uh, in and around Christmas. And then we'll pick back up in Ephesians, uh, actually Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, after January 1. So I want to say this as we get into Ephesians chapter 3 here. First of all, I need to make note of what time it is so that I don't uh, preach all the way to the end and we have no time left for the rest of our songs and, and, uh, and offering and so on and so forth. So uh, the second thing I want to say is that I'm, I'm assuming a good bit of knowledge. I, I just want to be honest from the very beginning. I'm assuming a good bit of understanding of Ephesians thus far. Um, so I, if I'm going to assume, like, as we work through verse 10, which is all we're going to do today, chapter 3, verse 10, that there's some working knowledge and understanding of Ephesians so far. I don't have time to kind of go back and rework through everything. So I just want to say that. I'm, I'm assuming a context here of, of, for verse 10, um, that you have a good understanding of the context. So with that said, let's begin in chapter 3. And we'll read all the way uh, for a handful of verses here. But we're going to settle in verse 10 for this morning. Paul says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And Paul says, it's of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And here's our verse for today. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God 
might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we work through verse 10 this morning, Father, I pray that anything that, that I have to say that is not tethered and tied to your scriptures, Father, that it would be erased from our memory, and Father, that the things that would grab a hold of our hearts today and our minds would be in the truth of your scriptures, Father. Father, may it change us to be your people. In your son's name we pray, amen. So let's go back, let's take a look at verse 10. It says this, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly place. So we're just going to exposit this verse this morning. We're going to work through this verse and apply it particularly to our idea of identity lived out in rhythms. So, what he has just said so far is that he's been made a gospel, a minister of the gospel, according to God's grace, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ so that they might understand it and bring, bring to knowledge and to understanding the good news of Jesus to all the world. Again, think Gentiles think the rest of the world. So that, so that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities of the heavenly places. So this is, this is where we're at so far. I want to begin with us thinking through this idea. Our tendency, our proclivity, our natural inclination is to gravitate toward our own glory. I just want to stop and think about that for just a moment. Our natural tendency is to gravitate toward our own glory. That we would do things that we would want acknowledged our own glory. Just think about that for a second. You do things, I do things our own way so that we can ultimately claim our own manifold wisdom. You know, one thing I've learned early on, at least over the past handful of years, when it comes to wisdom, uh, is that God, I think God understands our natural inclination to want to do things on our own, so that at the end of the day, we can lay claim over its success. That we can say, it's because I have all of this wisdom inside of me, because I can go think myself about this decision, and come to a conclusion, and therefore, when it, it's funny, because when the results are good, we lay claim to our great wisdom that was displayed, and when things go bad, we blame other people. I mean, that's typically what happens. But we are just naturally tend to do things for our own glory. And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we, we can even begin to think that even redemption is all about us, that salvation and, and the gospel is all about us. I mean, think about what we've just got done reading. Paul said in chapter 1, blessed be the God and Father who has blessed us in, in the heavenly place. He's chose us, verse 4. He predestined us, verse 5. In him we have redemption through his blood, verse 7. He lavished this on us, verse 8. He made it known to us, verse 9. It's in Him we've obtained an inheritance, verse 11, so that we were the first to hope, verse 12. In Him you also, verse 13, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, verse 14. I mean, you can read Paul, what Paul said here in chapter 1. That was just the first 14 verses. Chapter 1, chapter 2, and get to this and go, wow, this redemption is a lot about us. That the change in identity, the change in who we are now in Christ, for those who have been saved by Christ, are now, it's about us. And we, we get all these unsearchable riches that we talked about last week. Because it's about us. I mean, if you really searched your heart, as, as I've searched my heart even this past week, we like to make it just about 
us. Or maybe we just, you know, maybe a little cuter way of doing it that makes us feel a little bit better is we make it just about our family. It's just about my family. It's easy for us to gravitate the wrong things, like to move the wrong things into the center position. And that we would make everything then orbit around that center. Let me give you some examples. We are all about community. As Timothy Keller said a couple weeks ago, if you know who Timothy Keller is, he says, we're all about community until it gets in the way of our agenda. We all like the idea of church family and church community until it begins to squelch our plans. Another example, we're all about pointing out sin in someone else until someone else touches the pet sin that we just don't really want to get rid of yet. Both these examples, what is it? Well, it's all about me. It's all about centered, everything centered around me. Another example, we're all about serving. I hear this one. We're all about serving until that service goes unnoticed and or unappreciated. It wasn't really service then. It was just an agenda to make yourself feel better. Just notice when you serve and it goes unnoticed, do you get upset? Then you weren't really serving. You were serving yourself. You were centered around your own self. These are examples that what we were doing is really just all about us, though, though they were good deeds in and of themselves. It's Oftentimes it's about us. But I want to challenge us to think this way. We're going to be not in verse 20 and 21 until after the first of the year. But I want to remind us of what's coming, or show us what's coming ahead in chapter 3 in Ephesians. He says this, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, says Paul praying, than all that we ask or sing, think, according to the power at work within us. Right? So who gets the credit for what's going on inside of us? This power that's at work within us. To him be what? Glory. To Him be glory. Where? In the church and in Christ Jesus. When? Throughout all generations, forever and ever. All the glory for all time for the entire church in Christ for all time, forever and ever is to who? To Him. To Jesus. To God, ultimately. So I want to stop for just a moment before we dive in to hear more specifically. And I just want to ask, if, if you're not sure if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to ask you this question. Who do you live for? Who do you live for? Whose glory do you live for? Like, whose pleasure do you live like, Whose glory do you live for? Right? Yourself? Your kids? Your family? Whose glory do you live for? And, and I would challenge you to think through and this is a little abstract, but I would challenge you to think through that ultimately even living for your kids is ultimately just living for yourself. Because it's the happiness of your kids that brings you happiness. And when your kids cease to bring you happiness, then you will try to find happiness someplace else. It's ultimately just about you. The scriptures tell us, tells us that to be man-centered is going to lead us to destruction. Like to seek our own glory leads to our own destruction, both destruction here and now, and destruction ultimately in hell. What Paul is telling us here, though, it's not for our glory, it's for His glory. And then instead we should live our lives in a God-centered fashion, where we know we are helpless, and that God is gracious. That we are helpless and God is gracious. Specifically, I don't have time to dive into these verses right now, but specifically, and if you have questions, we can work through these passages later, but specifically, I want to encourage you that we are helpless to save ourselves from evil and destruction. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you are helpless to save yourself from evil and destruction, both here and in eternity, future, and hell. But God is gracious. But God is gracious and provides Jesus as the one who sacrificed, was sacrificed for your sins and my sins. He died on the cross for your sins and mine. And I would just encourage you to to repent for your sins and beg mercy from God. 
and trust in Jesus as the one who paid the price for your sins. This is just the beginning of putting God at the center of everything. If he's not at the center of your salvation, he's not going to be at the center of anything else. So, I want to step back now. And I want to say kind of the first big thought here for us is this. Ministers of the gospel are God-centered. Ministers of the gospel are God-centered. Again, back to verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might, be, might now be made known. So this wisdom of God, it's all about this aspect of God, or this glory of God being made known. It's all about Him. This is what Paul is affirming in this passage. He is saying, yes, we have become objects of God's affections. We are recipients of such great things. Chapters 1, chapters 2, chapter 2. But all of this is not just so that we can be happy. Or even so that we can be joyful. Yes, those are certainly things, but it's not just about that. It's not just so that you can go to heaven. Right? Hear me, I'm going to press in a little bit here. Many of us, in a lot of our Christian lives, or even in the churches we grew up in, if you grew up in a church, grew up with this mindset. Believe the gospel go to heaven. Believe in the gospel, and you'll go to heaven. And that was kind of the, the totality of the theology that you were taught. It kind of started there and ended there. And maybe somewhere in there, you can kind of become a little bit of a better person, right? So, but that was the kind of the framework of your theology, was right there. That's it. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to call your, your baby ugly, but that's terrible, Okay? That framework is, is very slim and, and, and very empty. Instead, the gospel is not just about you going to heaven. The gospel is for God's great people to glorify this great God. That God would be glorified. And so it's more like this. God changes our hearts so that we choose to believe the gospel. And as the gospel begins and continues to renovate our lives, we bring glory to God. So this gospel is about change now and change in the future, or for the future. And Paul has just said, listen to verse 8. This was last week. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me. To what? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So as we are ministers of the gospel, as we proclaim the gospel and help people understand the gospel, and as people believe this gospel, this is for the purpose in verse 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. So I preach the gospel, help people understand the gospel, they understand and love the gospel, and this is for the purpose of God's manifold wisdom being on display right now. And that's the, that's the thing we need to understand. Paul's not just talking about a manifold wisdom of God being displayed in the future once we all finally get to heaven, and so it's just gospel, get me saved, go to heaven. It's gospel, saved. And the manifold wisdom of God is on display now and forever. So through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. So the wisdom of God is put on display. Redemption is ultimately for the purpose of making the glory of the Lord known to all of creation. What's at the center? It's not you and I. It's the glory of the Lord. It's, it's that God's manifold wisdom would be Great brilliance and clarity be displayed for all to see. So the church, here's what happens. The church, the, the people, right? Not the building, the people, is created through what? The preaching of the gospel. And I preaching, I don't, don't mean like just this kind of preaching. But when we're proclaiming, I think more of an, in, a, in an evangelistic tone. That when you're proclaiming the good news of Jesus to people... Then what happens? People will get saved. 
the churches formed. And then, this is designed, right? So the church is created the preaching, by the preaching of the gospel. Then this church is designed to proclaim the manifold wisdom of God. So all this salvation talk, all this life-changing truth, all this new stuff is so that God's wisdom would be displayed for all to see. When you think of manifold, what is manifold? Basically, God's wisdom is incredibly rich, even colorful. Like God's, God's wisdom is beautiful. Right? Let me just think marvelous and intricate and, like I said, colorful. Like God's wisdom is beautiful. And what he's saying is that that beautiful display of wisdom is coming forth from his gospel-changed church. That that displays the manifold wisdom of God. And he says that it's for the evil powers to see. Or for the powers to see. I, I think Paul intends for us to understand particularly the evil powers. So if you look, it says, so, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I don't think he means heavenly places as in the place where God, reign, God is there and there's no evil. I think he means like in the spiritual realm. And I think he's taking us back to chapter 2, verse 1. What's he say in chapter 2, verse 1? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I think it's that that God intends to say that these are my people and this displays my wisdom. They were once yours and they are now mine. I think what God is saying to the evil powers as he displays his, his infinite wisdom is that in my great wisdom, I have taken my captives back. That they're mine. If you want to tie into biblical theology, go back and think about the Exodus. What is God doing? What is God doing? Like He is showing his great wisdom and power and taking his people back. So Christian, I know, I know all of us would say this, right? We would say it's all for God's glory. We got that. If you have any kind of church experience, you're going to, okay, it's all for God's glory. But my question is this, do you really, really, really actually live that way? We live as though it's for God's glory. Paul is saying here that all of this church stuff is for God's glory. So that it would display His wisdom. But do you genuinely believe and live as though everything you say and everything you do should be worthy and indeed actually bringing glory to God's name? Whether that's what you eat, that's what you say, that's where you go, that's how you communicate, that's whether, it's whether you're blessing someone for your own purposes or for, to sexually serve them. Is it indeed done for the bringing of glory to God's name? See, I think our problem is not that we don't do things for glory's sake. The problem is whose glory we do it for. I mean, many times we, we do it for our glory. So this leads us to, I think, the very practical question. How is God's wisdom actually displayed in the church? Right? So verse 10, right? So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers. Right, we've kind of talked about the last part of that. We talked about what this manifold wisdom is. But how is it practically displayed? And this is kind of really my, my thesis for this morning, is that God's wisdom is on display as God's people in unity live out gospel rhythms. I want to define that. God's wisdom is on display as God's people in unity live out gospel rhythms. Now, just in case you think of trying to import some kind of new, a, you know, cool, hip, phrase here, okay? What I'm really just saying is this, that God's wisdom is on displayed as God's people in unity live like God's people, okay? That God's, that God's wisdom is displayed as His people live like God's people. They live underneath His rulership, where in His place, 
underneath God's blessing. Our idea of gospel rhythms is a, is, a, is a tool, if you will, to help us actually do that. He says, so that through the church, verse 10. So that through the church, verse 10. Here's what I want to do. I want to walk us real quick from how I get through the church and I want to talk about gospel rhythms. Because you're like, whoa, 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 where's that at? Where's that at? Yeah, the, you're right. Gospel rhythms is not there in the text. But I want to I walk you through this real quick. All right, so follow me. The church is created to display the wisdom of God. All right? Created to display the wisdom of God. We, we got that so far. How does this church display, then, the wisdom of God? That's the question we're asking now. The church displays the wisdom of God as the unified people, now understanding the commands of Scripture rightly, and are now living out who they are in Christ. Right, so that's how God's wisdom is displayed, is that the church, as a unified people, now, are unified now because they understand the commands of Scripture and live rightly and accordingly, particularly out of their identity, who they are in Christ. All right, to see this, I need to take you back to the dividing wall of hostility in chapter 2. What was happening in the divide? If you've got to think back with me to what's going on, and we're going to go back and read the passage in just a second. But what was going on with the dividing wall of hostility was the Jews sinfully used the law as a means to separate themselves from the others via self-righteousness. So I'm going, I can want you to, I'm going to use the law as a means to, if you will, save myself. So if I obey the law then God will look favorably upon me. That's what was going on with the Jews in Jesus' day and in Paul's day as well. They said, we live a certain way in order to be right with God. This, of course, is what? Nothing other than self-righteousness. I can be right with God as long as I live a certain way. And with self-righteousness comes what? Division. It comes a lacking of unity. That's what's going on back in chapter 2. This is what happened even in the garden. Go back to Adam and Eve. God, we got this, man. We got this. Right? I'm going to eat the tree. I've got knowledge of good and evil. I can figure this out on my own. What divides Adam and, and Eve with God? It's nothing other than self-righteousness. What divided Adam and Eve? Why, did they ha- why were they naked? Like, they realized, oh no, I'm naked now. Why? Because there's this recognition of now shame in between the two. So now there's not only division. In the garden, you've got to see there's not only division between man and God because of self-righteousness. There's also division between man and woman because of self-righteousness. But go back and look with me in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 14 and 16. It says, For he himself, speaking of Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So Jesus in his flesh has broken down this wall. Verse 15, by abolishing what? The law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So here's what you have. You have division. You have division. And I think ultimately, you know, he's talking big picture here, division between the Jews and the Gentiles. But there's division everywhere. I think in many ways the division between the Jews and Gentiles is meant to resemble division between God and the world. That God's people who, who, who represent God, that there's division between them and everyone. But there's division here. That's, that's the main thing I want you to see because of a misuse of the law. That's the thing I want you to see. Misuse of the commands of God is bringing about division between the people. Because ultimately what? Because ultimately each group is depending upon their own self-righteousness. So one group, the Jews, are using the law as a means to justify themselves. And doing so, they pridefully and self-righteously look down at the world. And so here comes what? The dividing wall of hostility. Here comes this, this brokenness between men and men. Women and women. But then what happens, right? Jesus comes. That's why we're I'm just kind of looking at verse 14 and 16, through 16 of chapter 2. Then what happens? Jesus comes. He provides, at the very least, death to our self-righteousness and the making of the chosen righteous. The self-righteousness is put to death forever. For Jesus' righteousness 
is first a condemnation of our self-righteousness before it is efficacious as our righteousness. Let me say that again. Jesus comes, self-righteousness is put to death forever, for Jesus' righteousness is first a condemnation of our self-righteousness. And then after that, it becomes effective as our righteousness. But what's he do? He kills our self-righteousness. We, we cannot stand, the Jews cannot stand before God as righteous because of their own doing. It's only because of Jesus' doing. So then what comes now? A rightful use of the law. A rightful use of the commands of Scripture. And what is that? Uh, just very briefly, I think ultimately a rightful use of the Scriptures is that it, we understand the Scriptures as displaying God's character, and that is meant to inform us of our identity now that Christ indwells us. And then this brings about how we ought to live. But it's not, I live for righteousness sake, like to earn righteousness, but I live now because of the righteousness that now lives in me. So this is how life ought to be lived, because of who's in me. Not so that I can earn it. So God's wisdom is displayed now through the church. A group of people who once divided are now unified through their rightful understanding and use of God's Word. So I think this is what Paul's saying. I think Paul's saying that God's manifold wisdom is on display as God's people are now unified. Now how are they unified? It's through this abolishing of this wall of hostility, which is at its core a misuse of God's Word. The people now rightfully understand beginning to rightfully understand and use and apply God's Word, which is bringing unity between these people and there in that displaying God's great wisdom. So, follow with me here. <clears throat> Gospel rhythms, the, and how we're defining rhythms, understand rightly how we live and how we display the wisdom of God. Right? So, when we think about how do I live with intentionality, with everything tethered back to God's Word, what we think of as a church is, I have these rhythms that I do every single day. Now, what does my identity in Christ have to say about how I should live this particular rhythm? So the church shows the Lord's wisdom and glory through the fellowship between Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles. This is what Paul's talking about here. Instead of using the law as a means to build a wall of hostility, instead now we use the law, we use the commands of Scripture, I'm going to speak more broadly, in a way, not to make ourselves righteous, but because of the righteousness that we have in Christ. And when we think about rhythms as a church, we live a certain way because of the righteousness that has already been made ours. Specifically, a unified, faithful church that is living out faithfully together God's Word, is again, one more reminder to who? The principalities, the powers at work, that they have been defeated. And this is where we've got to think, churches. We think about moving beyond just religiosity into being a people after God's heart. Like, there's more at stake than just your little agenda getting squashed for the day. There's more at stake than just my little pet sin that I don't want to give up. It's too much fun. What we're talking about is the display of God's rightfully owned glory. His wisdom is on display. And when we live in an unrighteous way, we are robbing God of the glory that is His and His alone. And He's do that. And so when we talk about this idea of rhythms, all we're talking about is this idea of, I need to live in a way... That is intentional and indeed reflects and gives glory to God. So this living, so all the living in peace and purity with other believers glorifies God in manifesting his victory over evil. 
So when you think God's wisdom on display, I brought you through all that train of thought to kind of bring chapter 2 into chapter 3 here. When you think God's wisdom on display, you need to think gospel on display. The good news of God's salvation, the changing of God's people is now on display. And when you think gospel on display, I want you to think rhythms. I want you to think identity lived out in everyday gospel rhythms. So God's wisdom, I'm going to wrap it up with this, with this phrase here. God's wisdom is displayed as a once rebellious people, once living in every way for their own glory, glory now in unity, live in every way for God's glory. Let me say that again. God's wisdom is displayed as a once rebellious people who once lived in every way for their own glory are now in unity living in every way for God's glory. This is what displays the manifold wisdom of God. And it's what Paul is saying here. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. Because I think it's easy for us just to get to that, so that, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. So, so as long as we're kind of the church, we're kind of doing these you know, Christian things, and God's wisdom's on display, that's cool, and then we move on. There's so much more here. What, what does this mean? And Paul is saying God's wisdom is displayed as Christ indwells His people, and they live out the indwelling Christ that's in them. That everything, hear me, hear me, everything we do should be informed by the very one who lives inside of us. So if Christ indwells us, look at verse 17 of chapter 3. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. <clears throat> That's coming after the first of the year. But for right now, this means that everything, if Christ indwells us, that means everything we say, everything we do, words and deeds, everything must be informed and tethered to and guided by Christ. Now, how does that happen? It happens through the Scriptures, through prayer, through dependence on the Holy Spirit. But largely, God is informing these things by the Scriptures. This whole indwelling and identity thing. Like, we, we are informed like Christ indwells us. This changes who we are, the very core of who we are, the very lenses through which we view life. And Jesus says that He is the Word. And so the Scriptures inform that. Yes, everything we do. I'm, I'm not perfect at this. Like, If there's one big area of my life that, that I do not let the Scriptures inform is how I treat my body through what I eat. Right? I just talked about last week about being a foodie. I like food. I like good tasting food. I probably like it too much. So even when we eat and what we eat and those kind of things should be informed how we care for our lives and how we care for our, all these things. What sports we do or how much sports we do or what TV we watch or how much TV we watch or how we talk to our kids or how much we talk to our kids and how we speak to our spouse. All these things. Everything. Everything. What we do when we come up to a stoplight. How we treat the other person on the road with, who has road rage against us. Like, how do we, how do we, how do we, all these things. I, I should tell a story. We were on our way camping this past weekend, okay? And um, we're going down the highway. And, you know, I'm pulling a trailer. But I'm, I'm, I'm going with the flow of traffic in the fast lane, okay? I'll leave it at that. And this dude, I'm down by Austin Boulevard, right? And he's just like flies past me and you know and does that whole like you know I'm like he's like that right you know like give me the look and uh I probably was this is probably not kind of me I'm I'm probably repenting here but I think uh so he ends up like getting caught in traffic and I end up right up next to him once again right but we're kind of driving 
And so I just wave at him, you know, as I'm going by him. Okay. And Sarah's like, like thinking, who, do you know this person? So she's like, she's like that. And as she does that, she has no clue what's going on. He, he flips her off. And Sarah's like, what? Like, what just happened? And so Sarah's like, whoa, what was that? And I'm, Sorry, baby. I didn't mean, you know? Anyways, I don't know that I sinned. He did, for sure. How do we treat the server who doesn't serve us well? How do we tip her or him? Yes, the gospel, God, and I want to say the gospel, I mean God's word more broadly, informs these things. It impacts how we think. It changes all these things. And that's what we're trying to say, is that God's wisdom is on display as His people now rightfully use His scriptures together to display God's great wisdom. I want you to think about this. When we think about this identity thing, okay? Think about who we are in Christ, Christ now dwelling us, because all this impacts this church as it displays the manifold wisdom of God. I want you to think for a second. I got two examples here. First one is this. Think about engineers. Does anybody know an engineer? Anybody know engineers? Okay, good. So this example will set well. Engineers are weird people. Okay? They think very analytically, right? Am I, am I not? They, they do. Very analytically. They think in like processes all the time. They want to know why, how, etc. Everything they do and say comes from this brain of an engineer, right? It's all through the lenses of an engineer. Everything they think and say. I'm not saying this is bad. I'm just saying this. So here's an example. When in line at McDonald's, they're likely thinking about the pop machine inside that automatically drops the right size cup. You all seen that thing? Anybody seen that? This, that's awesome. So like they ring in your pop and this machine drops the pop, fills the cup with the right amount of ice, and then moves it around to the appropriate flavor and dispenses the right amount of pop, even accounting for the fizz that's at the top. That's crazy. You ever watch that thing? All right, so they're probably in their brain, I think about an engineer, are probably trying to reverse engineer this process, like how is this working? How is that happening? If you don't know what reverse engineer is, you're not an engineer. You see, everything they do and say is tainted and colored with the lens of an engineer's brain. There is no way around this. They think that way. God has even, in many ways, designed them to think this way. You see, wherever your identity is found, this will color the way you see and do life. What you say and do comes through these lenses. This is the beautiful thing of the gospel. Is that as Christ indwells, it changes our lens through which we view life. So where do we go to find out what the shade of that lens is? We go to the scriptures to find out where the, what the shade and how we are to view this part of life. I think, and we'll give you a second example. Many of us fall into this trap right now, even for those who are simply beginning their careers, or even a decade or two into their careers, think about retirement with me for a second. We can begin to find our identity in retirement. So what will we do? What do we do now? So think about, I mean, if, is anyone in here guilty of, oh, I just can't wait to retire? I am, right? <laughs> I just can't wait to, can't do it, right? I've heard people, <laughs> I've had <laughs> I've heard people, I've heard people like just get out of college and like working on, like working in their career going, oh man, I just can't wait to retire. I'm like, dude, you got a long way to go and your life's going to be terrible if that's what your perspective is. But we do this. I, I found myself doing this. So what happens? I mean, so, so what I'm beginning to think through life through the lens of what do I want to be? I want to be a retiree. I know, I know you're laughing, but I know many of you have thought this way, okay? So instead of being, so here's a practical example. Instead of being gracious with your money right now, you will store it all away because you're living to be a retiree. 
Now, yes, we do need to save for retirement, but what I'm just trying to point this picture is that our identity can be found, be wrapped up so much in that that we are simply living to be that. And then what happens when we finally get to retirement age, what does our culture say about retirement? It says it's the time to take a load off. But again, where's your identity? Is it in retirement? Because I thought Paul just said that we're ministers of the gospel. And there is no retirement to being a minister of the gospel. There is no retirement to having your identity in Jesus Christ. There is no retirement for that. So as we talked about last week, you're first and foremost a minister of the gospel. Retirement just simply means that now I can give more time to, to doing something else. But you see, if our identity is that of a retiree, then we will make decisions today, whether in retirement or not, like our culture has defined retirement. On the other hand, if your identity is in Christ, and you live in such a way that your rhythms reflect that, you will spend money and spend time like a minister of the gospel. And that's what Paul's saying here. That, peop- that God's manifold wisdom is on display as people live, ultimately, as ministers of the gospel. As people are administering the good news of Jesus Christ to all of creation. Now I know some of you are saying, I, I know this, duh. I got it. Identity. We've talked about this many times before. Let me just, just ask, like, Dad, I'm going to have to ask myself this, right? So this is coming from a question I asked myself. You know, if you get short, angry, revengeful, say with your kids or with your spouse, are you being a minister of the gospel to them? Or are you being a minister of your own wrath and your own salvation of works? Right? So when, when, when I go to my kids and, and I'm wrathful with them, I, 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 don't confuse wrath and like administering punishment and justice. Right? There, there's a place for that. But when I am exuding wrath to them and I am angry at them, I am, I am saying to them that in order for me to be happy, it's based upon your productivity of righteousness. Now, I'm communicating the wrong thing. I'm not communicating the good news of Jesus Christ, that there is grace even in your failings, that you're still my son even if you don't perform right. That's what it means to be in the gospel, like to be saved. So we are not stand before God as righteous because of the way we perform. We, perf- we stand before God because of the righteousness that Jesus performed. So I just want you, I want you to ask a question. <clears throat> Are we being ministers of the gospel? Because we might know a concept, but are we applying it? Are we actually ministers of the gospel? It's as we are ministers of the gospel that the manifold wisdom of God is on display. God's manifold wisdom is on display as God's people unite because of their understanding that we now live in rhythms informed by our new identity in Christ. And this identity in Christ, I'm saying, is described in the law. It's described in the Scriptures even more broadly. So, I'm going to set all that up to say this. I, I know for many of you this, like, this idea of rhythms is a foreign concept or one that you did not grow up with. That does not mean that your church was bad, okay? Now, if they didn't talk about how the gospel should impact every aspect of your life, then yeah, maybe so. But rhythms is just our phrase. It's just our phrase of how we used to describe the things we do every single day. A few years ago, as a church, we started thinking about this. We, in fact, uh, a pastor friend of mine and I were reflecting. <clears throat> when he came and started a, a church, he spent a lot of time applying truth, assuming that the people had the truth. And now what he's finding is that the people aren't able to apply anything because They've spent so much time applying truth that he assumed the people had, but they didn't have the truth. Now, I mean, he was teaching truth, but not spending as much time as he probably should have been. Well, when we first started renovation time, we spent lots of time proclaiming the truth. Matter of fact, my friend even came and said, I think you guys are crazy. You spent so much time talking about doctrine and the truth. And yes, we do. And, uh, but then we got to a point as a church where I'm going, well, our people aren't applying it. They're not applying this truth 
that we're talking about. And so we started thinking, how can we help our people apply theology? How can we help them apply the truth? And that, that's where we kind of got this idea of these rhythms. Uh, well, we took them from someone else. They ultimately had the idea. But we began to think, that's a good tool for us to use here as a church. So the idea of rhythms. And the whole idea is this. How does my identity in Christ impact my rhythms. So if I'm going to display the manifold wisdom of God, I'm arguing that this is ultimately going to come down as God's people understand that Christ indwells them. He is now defining their new identity and that this identity now impacts the way we live. Hence our rhythms. So that's kind of our tool that we used to talk about these things. So I just want to talk for the next few moments about the idea of rhythms. What are the implications of this passage for rhythms? Now I want to take a few brief moments to think about the various rhythms of life that we have and how we can display the manifold wisdom of God as the changed people living out our rightful understanding of these commands. So what we did is we came up with a few years ago, we came up with like five rhythms Five rhythms that we all do, that we're all a part of, that we all have at some level and in some way each and every single day. So when you think about gospel identity impacting rhythms, these are the five, we kind of use these five rhythms, but that's meant to really just be a launching pad into thinking through how does my identity impact everything that I do. So that, again, back to chapter 3, verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God would be on display. The first is this, we talk about work. We all work, or we all should work. I'm back, let me back up. We all should work, we have, but our work looks different, right? Some of us go to a job where we work and we receive a paycheck. Some of us go to the living room and the kitchen and to the house and work there where we receive lip from our kids um, as a paycheck. And then oftentimes a husband gets home who, who deals with it for 30 minutes and says, I'm done with that paycheck. Uh, I want to turn on the TV. We work in different ways. Or maybe it's schoolwork, right? That's a, where your paycheck is knowledge. Your paycheck is, it, it, it just looks different. Again, I'm not trying to draw a theology of all this, but we work. And we will see our work as exercising dominion over the part of the world that God has given to each of us. Right? So back to the garden, right? We all have, we're, we're out to exercise dominion wherever we are. Whether that's as a student, or as a nurse, or as a, as a, uh, a pastor, or whatever the case is. And then we too, so Adam and Eve, Adam along with Eve's help was given the task to exercise dominion. They were to care for God's creation. We too, by God's good design, have the task of exercising dominion over the earth, and this is work. Sometimes it's hard work, but God in His goodness and grace created work as a means of representing Him. Work is not something to get away from. Work is not something to get done with so I can get to the weekend. Work is not something to just get to 5 or 6 o'clock so that I can go home. You're missing out. Like God has given you work so that you can represent Him. Not just so that you can go to a place and share the gospel, although that's part of representing God. But the very act of working, the very act of filling out that paperwork and punching your time clock and, and, and the very act of, of submitting to your boss and carrying out the plans of the company. These are, these are good things that God has given you to do. That your identity now in Jesus Christ informs how you do those things. So whether you're a student or you're stay-at-home parent, whatever the case is. So as we work, what do we do? If it's a good thing of God, then we invite other people into the goodness of God as they experience tangibly what it means to represent God and care for His creation and to work. So there's a question. As you go to work, as you work around whoever you're surrounded by, are you doing it in such a way that you understand God's goodness so that these people would be, and then invite these people into working for the goodness of God. Right? So as we think about, think about that. The manifold wisdom of God is on display 
Because think about what is our culture? Our culture is there's nothing but this tension between boss and employee, right? There's nothing good in most of those relationships. It's always the boss is out to get however much money they can get, and it's the employees out to do as little work as possibly as they can and still get paid for it. Or it's all about using this boss as a means to get onto this other career. Or and I know there's situations are different, but but there's not this beautiful submission and and happy care relationship there where it's understood as a goodness thing. So what happens then is as a Christian comes in that context and goes, I'm yeah, you're my boss. I want to submit to you. Ultimately, I'm, though I'm working for God. And now because I'm working for God, now I can treat my boss in the right way. What happens there? That's, that's an incredible display of wisdom. The work of God that he would overcome this crazy, sinful relationship. All right, we should move on. Eating. Eating would be our second idea of rhythm. We all eat every day, unless you're fasting. We eat every day. We regularly eat meals with others. And we invite them into the community of God as we do so, as we think about eating. Meals are a daily reminder of our common need for God. Do you think about meals that way? Do you think about meals as a daily reminder of your need for God, both physically and spiritually? That's the whole point of fasting. If fasting is you remove that, and then every time you hit that urge of, I'm hungry, it is, oh my goodness, I am dependent on God. I need Him. And that's supposed to spur then a spiritual reminder that I need God both physically and spiritually. But how many times do we just go eat? Kind of like we go to the gas station and refill the car and we treat eating the same way. We say, I'm just going to hurt and get food in my mouth so I can go. What do you think we pray? Like, what do, we, what, what do we pray before we eat? Because we should be remembering we should be remembering that we need God and God is gracious to provide. So to tie this in, you know, God now dwells in you. So as we think about identity in Christ, as you know from, from our what we talk about identity, one of the things we talk about is like missionary. Like we are missionaries. If Jesus is a missionary, he now indwells us, we're now missionaries. So the question is now then, as a missionary, how should I eat? How does being a missionary inform the way I eat? That displays the manifold wisdom of God. Another rhythm we talk about is blessing. God, God's design, think back to Abrahamic covenant, and is that God's people would be a blessing to the, to the nations. To the world. Christians are, at least in our culture here today, are really good about talking about blessings but not actually doing anything with it. But we are meant to be a blessing. So you think about how does, so my identity in Christ is I'm a servant. How does that impact the way I bless? Well, if I'm truly a servant in Christ, because of Christ in me, then now I can bless to actually bless other people whether or not I get anything in return. That's called servitude. But if I bless just to get something back, that's not being a servant. I mean, I mean if anything, you're serving yourself. But because of now Christ in us, we're servants, we can actually bless to bless. Not to get back. But we can bless So this rhythm of blessing. So think about that when you have your waitress who does a terrible job, right? Does a terrible job. Our, our, our server on our way home from camping last night, was uh, she was a little rough. Um, but how can I bless her in that moment? How can I bless her and take care of her? Not because she did anything even to deserve it. I mean, that's the gospel, Right? In the gospel, we don't get justice, as I heard John Piper say one time. We get grace. Jesus got justice. We get grace. So how can I give grace? Fourth one, communicate. Something we do every day. We both speak and listen. We speak to God and we listen 
to God. We speak to others and we listen to others. Jesus listened to God in prayer to know His Father's will. He also sought the Scriptures. Jesus knew the Old Testament. And we are called to listen to God, especially through His Word. We also understand that part of communication, again, is to speak. So what do we do? We speak truth to our brothers and to our sisters. To people who are not our brothers and not our sisters. We edify, we correct, we teach, we rebuke. All for the purpose of bringing grace into other people's lives. And we receive this as well. We don't communicate to proclaim our own gospel. That's what we've been talking about for the past few weeks. We, pro- we speak and communicate to, to speak of God's gospel. That Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the punishment for your sin and mine. And we seek to communicate this gospel in everything we do. The fifth uh, uh, rhythm we talk about is recreate. A little bit of a pre, uh, play on word too is to think about recreating as well. Think of a time to rest and play and celebrate and create and restore beauty in ways that reflect God to others. I am a function over form guy. I am a, uh, as long as it works well, I'm okay with it. Uh, some of you, God is gifted to be form, maybe even over function. As long as it's beautiful, it doesn't necessarily matter if it works. Uh, praise God for you. We need each other. God is about making things beautiful. I mean, we, I mean, we, fail, we, we fail to see that. But he's to make things beautiful. He's to make your life beautiful. Like that, God wants to make your life beautiful. How's he going to make your life beautiful? It's going to be as, as God's identity, Jesus, indwelling you, and you live everyday rhythms in a way that is informed by who Christ is and bringing glory to God. You know, it's talking about beauty. Like, God's glory is beautiful. And we are called as a church. Like God is, God is, here's the deal, God is displaying His manifold wisdom through His church. Right? And we get to be a part of that. <clears throat> Look at verse 10. It says, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You see, the gospel is about God's glory. This gospel Paul is talking about preaching and that we are called to preach. It's about God's wisdom being on display for all the world to see His great glory. God is at the center of all of this. God is at the center. Even Jesus comes. Why? And who's He seeking to glorify, right? His Father. And what's awesome is then the Father glorifies the Son and exalts Him. And you just see this like... like no, I'm going to give you the glory. No, I'm going to give you the glory. You know? What are they doing? But ultimately, the Father we see is at the center of this glory. And it's radiating from Him. If you've seen the pictures, recent pictures of this high-def imagery of the sun, right? Just, just the beauty radiating from the sun that gives life to all that we know. Right? It's God. I mean, the sun's not God. I don't want to get some mystically weird here, you know, but God is that. I mean, God is the center of our universe. God's great glory is displayed, though. Think about this. God's great, I mean, think about God's, see how, how beautiful the earth is, how beautiful our solar system, all these things. So, and how much glory is displayed of God. But what does he say? How is His glory ultimately displayed? It's in the manifold wisdom displayed in the church. Think about that for a second. How vast and glorious this, this creation is. But yet His glory is displayed through the manifold wisdom of the church. Through His manifold wisdom displayed in the church. Now, now when you think about like, my identity informing everything I do so that I might display the manifold wisdom of God? That brings a little bit of weightiness to it, doesn't it? 
It is a marvelous task that God would be able to take a bunch of self-righteous people and unite them to be His people. And this is what we see. These people divided because they were concerned with proclaiming their own glory by misusing the law. And what does God, what does God do? He God, God sends Jesus to die on the cross for them to strip them of their self-righteousness and replace it with true righteousness. So God's wisdom is displayed as He rescues these hearts from self-righteousness. These new hearts display God's wisdom as they now live in light of the righteousness that they now have in Christ. You see, God's manifold wisdom is displayed as God's people are united by their living the gospel out in their everyday rhythms. Let's pray. Father, thank you for thank you for your word this morning. And I pray that your people are encouraged. I, I pray that we would look this week and think about the areas, or even these next few moments, and think about the areas of our lives that are that are not informed, that are not being informed by the Christ that now indwells us, but instead are informed by our culture and our world and the evil powers of today that, <clears throat> Father, what, what is governing and guiding the rhythms of life that we are in? Eating and communicating. What, what informs the way we do these things? Father, I pray that we would seek to take all of that captive as your word talks about taking captive every thought and making it obedient to Christ. For these thoughts find manifestation in actions and rhythms. And so, Father, I pray that we would be a people that would understand that, that because of the power that is at work in us, we can and should and must live as the people of God as we seek to apply the gospel to every area of our lives so that your manifold wisdom might be displayed. And Father, I am thankful that Paul reminds us, even in these very words, that your manifold wisdom is on display. Why? Because it's not, none of this is dependent on us. It's all dependent on you, Father. And we trust you for that. So, Father, even in our failing, let us repent and turn our eyes to you. Father, for let us not glory in our own ability, but let us glory in our Redeemer. For it's in his name we pray.